Tonight is a particularly exciting subject because we're coming to the commission. We're coming to the marching orders that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has given to us upon his resurrection and prior to his ascension. So let's turn in your Bibles tonight to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24, I'd like to read from verse 41 down through 49. We're approaching the end of this gospel. Lord willing, we should be done with this by next week. But uh, tonight will be verses 41 through 49. So let's just stand together and hear this word from our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, Jesus said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and then honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, God in heaven, as we receive these words, we hear them from our Savior himself, and they are for us tonight. Father, help us. Help us to apply them. Help us to understand them. Help us to understand and experience and receive the authority of these words that uh, we might live them here in Elbert County as well as Brazil and all the other nations around the world in which you take us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. So here we are following the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the resurrection, of course, has such profound implications, the most important event in all of human history from the creation of the world to where we are today. So if there's one significant event, it would be that Jesus came, he died on the cross for our sins and rose again the third day some 2,000 years ago. And the event was as important or as real, as real as what is happening here tonight. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. And everything has changed. The world will never be the same because of the coming of Jesus. And so, you know, in terms of our reality, things have changed. The world is different today. The reality of the resurrected Christ and the reality of the situation before the resurrection are so very, very different. I want you to think for a moment about the comparison with Adam himself. Adam was the first man. Adam fell in the garden. And what Adam did to us was very significant, wasn't it? I mean, imagine the difference between how things are today and how they were in Eden. Very, very different. Very, very different. First Corinthians 15 speaks of the first man, Adam, becoming a living being, but the last Adam became a living or a life-giving spirit. And then Romans 5 and verse 17 as well does this comparison between Adam and Jesus. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. It was Adam that brought all that death to the earth. Much more, 
will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So what Adam brought to the world, which was sin and death, Jesus brought just the opposite. Jesus brought righteousness and life. He, he displaced that, that death, that sin, with righteousness and eternal life. And it says here that he reigns unto eternal life. This, this life comes with a power, comes like a freight train into our, our lives, into our world today. So Jesus has become the new man. Jesus is the new creation, the second Adam, humanity 2.0. Talk about, you know, 1.0 and 2.0. Adam was 1.0 and Jesus is 2.0. And as we believe in Jesus, we have new life in Him and we are humanity 2.0. Think about how radical the fall of Adam was into sin. If you compare the pre-fall world to the post-fall world, you see such a significant difference between these things. Think of all the death and the destruction, the murder and the mayhem all of the bad things that has happened to the world all around us. And then it was a progressive degrade as well into the worst possible situation you could ever imagine to the point that God had to destroy the world with a worldwide flood. It got just so bad that there was, uh, there was no hope for those who were caught in the middle of it except for those who have been saved by the grace of God. And, and then now we have the coming of Jesus Christ. If any be in Christ, he is a new creature. Now all things or old things are passing away. Behold, all things become new. So, so this is a whole new day. So we've come into the resurrection life of Jesus. And as we are incorporated into that, we see that uh, we have experienced a, a, a resurrection ourselves. And we ourselves are, are beginning a post-resurrection experience um, that as, is as significant as the fall of Adam in the garden. Jesus brought this new life to us and we live this life today. So, so this is a whole new world that we're entering into. We see such a difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament for the coming of Jesus and his resurrection. But now we come to these verses and we find uh, tonight five things that characterize Jesus' post-resurrection ministry. Five things that he did, at least summarized in this passage. And there may be a few other things that he did, but as far as we can tell, these are the five things that characterized his post-resurrection ministry over a period of about 40 days. Uh, There were 40 days between the point at which he was resurrected and when he ascended into heaven. So now, here, let's go over these one by one. First, the first thing we find in the passage tonight is that Jesus fellowshiped and ate with his disciples. He fixed a meal for them at the Sea of Galilee, and here we find that he ate fish and honey. So that characterizes a post-resurrection experience, a post-resurrection life. Some people will ask the question, will there be eating and drinking in heaven? I believe there will be. Uh, Jesus in his post-resurrection body was enjoying fellowship and some food with his disciples. And uh, moreover, this also legitimizes the consumption of meat and sugar to the relief of some of you here tonight. So those of you who enjoy your meat and your sugar uh, or sugary honey, uh, Jesus partook of that in his resurrection body. So 
So that, again, is a, a beautiful uh, reminder that, that God has some things for us to enjoy of his, of his creation, and Jesus enjoyed that with his disciples in his post-resurrection body. But more importantly, and I think this is really the more fundamental message for us tonight, is that Jesus wanted to have fellowship with his disciples. And we find this immediately. He, he, he wants to come back into fellowship. And a big part of fellowship is sharing a meal together. And so that's what Jesus was doing after his resurrection. He came right back into fellowship. And that's what he wants with us. And that's what we will have with him on into eternity. So Jesus is still in his human body, he's still one of us, he's still our brother, he's still human, and he wants to be in fellowship with us. So that would be the first takeaway I think I would take uh, from this passage. Secondly, verse 44, there is the necessity that all things be fulfilled, and uh, what Jesus is presenting here is a, a teaching from the Old Testament law. And, and, and insisting that God must fulfill his promises. Verse 44, all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus' intent was to go into the Old Testament and point out the, the sorts of things that were prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures and the authority with which those things were presented. And then, and then announcing that the, these things that God had intended, had purposed, had come to pass. So, again, what is assumed here is that all of what has happened is God's intention, His plan, and His purpose. This was not a plan B. That was, this was His intent uh, from the very beginning. So this also presents a unity of Scripture. And the idea that you know, Scripture needs to be interrupted and we, we, we find a different t- type of salvation or a different plan of salvation in the Old Testament as we do in the New Testament is uh, a cultic idea. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a cult if somebody holds to that, but that would be a cultic idea. It's an idea uh, much like what the Muslims and the Mormons uphold, and that is that God brings successive uh, revelations that contradict previous revelations. Not at all. Uh, God's revelation of the Old Testament uh, was uh, the the very same as the New Testament in terms of the intent uh, for our salvation. And that is that is the Old Testament promise, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from the beginning, from the announcement in the Garden of Eden at the fall of man, uh, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent, to the announcement made by Moses of the prophet who was to come, and to the Davidic promise that, uh, that David's seed would sit upon his throne, God always intended uh, for Jesus to come and that he would be the prophet, the priest, and the king uh, for us. So this was intended from the very beginning. And uh, Jesus wanted to convey this word of God uh, to his people. And that's what we're to do today as well. We're simply to, to exposit the Old Testament passages as Jesus did and point out that what God had intended and prophesied in the Old Testament is exactly what has happened in the New Testament revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus spoke the word of God already declared. He did not speak so much of his work as he spoke of what God had already communicated. And it just simply said, these things that God has announced and communicated in the Old Testament is what has occurred in the life and the ministry of himself, of Jesus. So, so always the definition of what happens or what happened is what? How do we know what happens? How do we know what happened? This is very key, of course, to our faith. How would we know what happens? How would we know what does happen? Well, the best way to do is by way of the prophetic word of God or by the apostolic word. 
that explains to us what happened. That is, the word itself confirms the reality of it. There are four sources of knowledge for us. What are they? Four ways in which we come to know something. What are the four ways which, by which we come to know something? The first is by science. Science is perhaps one of the very strongest means by which we come to uh, not a certainty, but a probability, a sense that something happens. We drop a ball a hundred times and conclude with 99% probability that uh, gravity exists. So, you know, we can be pretty sure about the, the process or the force of gravity because we've tested it over and over again. You know, you've fallen off of a building or you've fallen off of a wall uh, 60 or 70 times and eventually little boys figure out gravity, you know. They don't initially... Uh, but it, you know, in some cases, perhaps for Bo or for Ty, it might take, you know, 140 times uh, before they have proven or have established the truth of the force of gravity for themselves. It may take some time, right? But, but we, all, we all come to a knowledge by way of scientific testing, by way of observation, scientific experience, but never in terms of certainty. We can't be entirely certain except by establishing higher and higher levels of probability that these sorts of things exist in our world. Now, the second source of knowledge is history or eyewitness accounts. Now, eyewitness accounts are not as accurate as, as science because eyewitness accounts typically re rely upon one or two or three people uh, viewing something that happened. They can report on that, but the sad fact is, you know, a lot of historians are biased. So we can't be entirely sure that something happened by historical record. That's one of the problems. Now the third, the third forms of knowledge, and this is the very worst, is called forensic analysis. We can know, attempt to know something by just staring at rocks and trying to determine what happened 6,000 years ago or 100 million years ago when the dinosaurs disappeared. This is called evolution. It's, uh, it's as close to a fairy tale as you can possibly get. Uh, it is called guesswork. And so, so the idea of looking at rocks or looking at a handful of bones that you scrape up from a, an African desert is for the worst form of knowledge you can get. It's not history, it's not science, it's simply doing forensic analysis. It's similar to what Sherlock Holmes does. It's a very, very unreliable form of knowledge. So again, these are three forms of knowledge. Sherlock Holmes and the evolutionist being the very worst. Uh, the next is an eyewitness who sat there and watched the cause and effect relationship happening, and that's called a historical document. And then we have science. And science is, again, the very best form of knowledge that we can get as, as humans. But none of these establish certainty. There's only one form of knowledge that establishes certainty, and what is that? The Word of God. Thank you. The Word of God. Absolutely. The only way we can know for sure that something happened, the only way we can know for sure uh, some historical truth, a cause and effect relationship or anything else, is by the Word of God itself. God's Word is the only possibility uh, that we can know anything for sure. And that's why Jesus refers to the Word of God in the Old Testament as to interpreting and, and laying out the certainty of what happened in his death and his burial and his resurrection. So, and that's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what? That the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross according to the scriptures and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. It always has to come to us as that which is reported to us in the word of God itself 
in Scripture itself, whether the Old or New Testament. So, the second thing that Jesus did was to bring out the, the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures, and apply it to uh, His own life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Okay, number three. The third thing that Jesus does in His post-resurrection ministry comes in verse 45 of our text. So, let's just take a look at that. He opened up their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. All right, so let's take a look at this opening up of the understanding. By nature, brothers and sisters, little ones, we are all pretty dull to the truth. How much of the sermons do you really understand? Well, I would say that if, if you're me, I probably caught about, oh, 30 to 40% of it, but even that I struggled with this morning. Okay, and I think we all do. It's hard for us to understand the truths of God's Word. Now, we may say, yeah, we, we picked up on some of it, but, uh, but we don't understand the full impact of it, all the implications of it. It doesn't really settle with us. It doesn't sink into us very well. Well, the reason for that is sometimes our understanding is blocked by our mental abilities. So sometimes as children, you know, or even as adults like myself, we may not understand the things that we've heard because we have a limitation in terms of our mental ability. Now, God is very smart. God is very much more intelligent than we are. By, by how much? Well, by an infinite proportion. You know, God knows far more than any of us. If, uh, if uh, you know, one of the little ones, Carson, knows about this much, you know, about an inch off the ground. He knows that much. I've got about that much. I'm about two inches off the ground. So I know a little bit more than Carson does. But God knows how much, all the way up into the heavens, all the way up to an infinite proportion, God knows so much more than you and I. So God is so much more intelligent than us. He, he, he knows all things. He's omniscient, as we say. So sometimes our understanding is blocked by our mental capacity. Uh, we simply don't have the understanding. And most, most scientists, in fact, all scientists do not completely understand subatomic physics. They, they don't. They understand some parts of it, but they don't understand all of it. Uh, sometimes also we don't have all the pieces. So, you know, we have bits and pieces. We have some of the things we're supposed to know, but we don't have all the things we're supposed to know. And that's, of course, why we, we need to be studying God's Word, because He gives us the full amount of knowledge we need to know for our faith in life. It's sufficient for our faith in life. So God has given us a sufficient uh, understanding, but there are just bits and pieces. We've perhaps not been listening. Uh, perhaps we've been distracted by external influences. Oftentimes demonic influences creep in. Sometimes it's just somebody getting up and going to the bathroom. You know, that creates something of a block of our understanding, you know, because we now miss the next 20 seconds of the message, right? It's something, you know, some little piece of fuzz comes down, settles on your glasses or something, and then you're just missing out on some proportion of the message. You know, that kind of stuff happens. But oftentimes it is a demonic force because the Bible says the birds of the air are there to pluck the word out of your, your mind, your heart, uh, and so that you cannot pay attention. There actually are spiritual influences that are much stronger um, and, and much more active here in the church service than it would be, say, in a university classroom or, 
you know, somewhere where they're explaining atomic physics or something, there's not going to be too many demons creeping in saying, okay, we, we certainly don't want them picking up this message, but much more of a spiritual influence in the preaching of the Word of God. Sometimes our own spiritual condition will block our ability to realize the truth, the relevance of the truth, the full import of the truth, and the sufficient applications of the truth. All right. Now, I want to uh, take, for example, this one passage in Ephesians 1.18. I think this is really good. This is a prayer of the Apostle Paul speaking directly to this issue of why Jesus was there to open their understanding because they were so ignorant of all these things. In fact, we're, we, we, we're surprised. Aren't we surprised that the apostles, none of them, none of the disciples expected Jesus to rise from the dead on the third day? Does that surprise us? That surprises all of us because he had told them that. In fact, he had spent some percentage of his ministry saying, okay, guys, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be arrested. They're going to torture me. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. So he'd worked through that very carefully. You know, is everybody taking notes? Okay, we're going to go through this one more time. But, you know, is it run, by, run that by me one more time? Run that by me one more time? Would you run by me one more time? You know, they kept saying that over and over again. So you're asking, why would they not expect a resurrection on the third day? It just seems so surprising to us, doesn't it? And I think it's because of this spiritual blockage. Brothers and sisters, there's a spiritual blockage. You know, the, the pastor can yell as loud as he wants to. He can use as many illustrations. He can do the whiteboard thing and he just do, you know, try to get a few people up here to demonstrate the truth. You can do all kinds of things. But, but if, if you've got a spiritual blockage in your own heart and mind, this truth is not going to come through. And, and so Jesus opened up the, the eyes of their understanding. And this is precisely what Paul is praying for in Ephesians 1.18. Paul prays here that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. The eyes of your understanding. Be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand, at the heavenly places, far above principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. As you hear this, children, are you thinking, he uses a lot of big words. He's like, this is really big. You would understand how big this is. How wonderful this is. How stupendously amazing and what a tremendous blessing that we have in Jesus. And you hear these words and, you, and you're still like, it just sounds really big, like this is really big news and very important and there's internal significance to this. But... Uh, I need to go to the bathroom right now. You, you, that kind of interrupts it, doesn't it? Well, certainly if the preacher went to the bathroom, that would interrupt it, I think. One reason why I try to use the restroom before the message. But you see how I could interrupt the message, or I don't really get it, or it's, it seems something wonderful and something big, and this pastor is trying to explain this hope of our calling and we're going to heaven and eye is not seen nor ear heard nor is entered in the heart of man what God has prepared for us as we wait for heaven and, and, and it's just this 
this power of the resurrection that works in us. And if we could just engage the power tool of the resurrection in our life, we could overcome some of the biggest obstacles, stomp on the devil, and big things would happen in our lives. You see, if you just get it, if you could just get it, Paul says, but you're not going to get it. You're just not going to get it. Unless we pray that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened. You see, something's got to happen to you. You're, you just you can't see it. Unless God opens your eyes to see it. All right, let's move on to number four. This is the commission, verses 46 to 48. Now he gives the commission. And he, by the way, he gives this several times in the Gospels. In fact, I'm going to read that in just a moment. But here again, verse 46, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endowed or endued with power from on high. So this is the commission. The, the commission is what? It was necessary for Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and it is necessary that this be preached. So that, that's what he's saying. We've got to get the message out. Doesn't this make sense? The greatest message, the greatest action, the, the most wonderful news... The solution to the biggest problems that mankind has ever faced, we need to tell folks about it. Does that make sense? If it's that good, if God gave up His only begotten Son, which is a pretty significant price, the news is going to have to get out. Somebody is going to have to show up on Sunday evening and share the message. Then Monday morning it should be shared in the homes. You know, it just the message has got to be shared. It's got to get out. Does that make sense? And this is the core message that needs to be preached among all the nations around the world. I need to do this in Brazil. Where's Chad? Remind me. Chad, remind me to do this this week. Steve? Text me. Right? The, the message has got to get out to every nation. I mean, that's what he's saying here. And I think this is above all the greatest and most urgent priority for all of life. Many things to do in our lives, right? Take out the trash Friday morning. There's many things to do. Got to get to work tomorrow. Got to milk the cows. Tonight? Already done. Okay. A lot of things to do. A lot of things to do. Amen? But, but this proclamation, this message, is a, a really high on the list. It's a priority. And why must it be done? Well, for the salvation of souls, yes. But that's not the primary reason. Why does this have to be done? Why must we do it? Why must all of us feel an obligation to it if we're believers? Why? Why is this so important? For the salvation of souls? Yes. But let me just say, because God wants us to. God's committed to this. Jesus has commanded it. 
God gave up His only begotten Son. He's got a lot riding on it. At some point, you know, in your life, you need to trust God. You need to just come to a point where you trust God. That His priorities are the right priorities. This message trumps all other messages. At some point, you just got to believe God that this is the biggie, that this is big. And that there are eternal reasons why this must be done. We, I mean, we don't know all the eternal reasons. Do we? I mean, why, why do we need to get people saved? Why, why is that important? We don't understand all of it. But we do get this, that this task is, is critical. And so this task is supposed to consume, well, the next 2,000 years of world history, and it has. The imperatives come in all the Gospels. Let me just read them quickly. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Then Mark sixteen fifteen. this is the Mark... Uh, the, the Mark's version of the commission. It, s- it seems that all the Gospels have a separate version, which means that Jesus, I think, was communicating to them at different times over that 40-day period. So Mark's version goes like this. Listen to Mark's version. Mark sixteen fifteen. Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And then John 21. You say, where's the commission in John 21? It was a pretty simple message. Where was the commission in John 21? Anyone want to guess? Feed my lambs. Very brief. It was repeated, I think, three times. So the commission in John is very short. It's just, feed my lambs. So that's, that was it. But... Uh, but we are to teach all things Jesus has commanded. And here we find in this passage the core content of the message. So, so here in this particular passage, we get into content and, and it boils down right into the fundamentals. And that's why this passage is so important. Matthew doesn't do that. Mark doesn't do it. Uh, John doesn't do it either. But Jesus includes this core message, four things that must be preached and um, incidentally, this is precisely what Peter preached at Pentecost. So, so you'll see this is going to track almost exactly with what Pastor Josh Schweisser has been bringing out in the last few messages. But let me just summarize it. You've been listening to his messages. I'm going to summarize uh, what Josh has preached and what Peter preached and what Jesus wants us to preach real quick. Is that okay? Go through that real quick. Number one... That the very person of Jesus Christ suffered, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, uh, the promised Messiah, suffered and died. And put simply, that the Messiah died for our sins. And his death brought about our redemption, our reconciliation with God. By his death, he overcame principalities and powers. He killed sin in the flesh and redeemed us from the power of the devil. So we can get into some of the theological elements to that. And that's the Apostle Paul has really given us a little bit more of the backdrop of what's going on in Christ dying on the cross for our sins. And then number two, that Christ rose from the dead. So that's the second thing that we need to share with others. 
Oh, now, now think about this. Given the resurrection, what can possibly go wrong? Why is this the good news? And I think that's why we need to come back to the resurrection over and over again. If there is the resurrection and we will be resurrected, what can possibly go wrong? It's a new paradigm. The fear of death is gone. Death itself is not an issue for us. Death has been overcome. We will live forever and there's no possibility of that life ever being compromised anymore. So that, that certainly is good news. Death was the problem and resurrection is the solution. Okay, and then thirdly, repentance. Repentance. We're to teach repentance as well as part of this core message. Repentance first and then the remission of sins. Repentance is preached by Jesus, of course, out of the gate. And then the apostles, Apostle Peter, Paul, others, they're constantly coming back to the message of repentance. And, that, and that's, that's why we emphasize as much as we do in our church, because it is important. Repentance is very fundamental to the Christian life. Now, again, this is my take on it. Remember, uh, Pastor Josh preached on this this morning. But let me make this even more simple for the children. I want to make this super simple for children tonight. Repentance is what? Repentance is saying, I was wrong. So to, to, to make it really, really, really simple. I was thinking like this, and I was wrong. I was wrong. It's, it's just a very simple thing. It's first a willingness to submit to preaching where the possibility of you being wrong is presented. Now that's the first thing. Anybody who comes to repentance is going to have to listen to Peter's sermon. That's number one. You must attend Repentance Community Church where the message that is so offensive to the world and offensive to you is being preached. That's critical. You must, you must be offended. And you must be willing to be offended. You must attend a church where you will be offended. That's the first thing. If you don't want to attend a church where you'll be offended, or where repentance is being preached and pressed upon you, then you're not a Christian. Okay, so that's the first thing. You have to be able to say... I was wrong. And you have to be willing to say I was wrong. Which means, brothers and sisters, we have to attend a church where the possibility of you being wronged, wrong is presented before you almost all the time. Have you been wrong about your consideration of the second commandment, for example? I just throw that out. Maybe you've been wrong about pictures of Christ. Or your estimation of God, your view of God. Have you been wrong concerning the first commandment, the seventh commandment? Okay, then it is also the willingness to admit the possibility that you could be wrong. Then also, it is the willingness to admit that you have been wrong. I'm trying to break this down a little bit further, okay? And then it's also the willingness to admit that you have been very wrong. And then... It's the willingness to admit that you've been very, very wrong. And then, it's the willingness to admit that you've been very, 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 very wrong. That's repentance. That's repentance. Repentance 
again, I know this is a, a run through the same thing, but in God's providence, this was what Jesus told us to preach. Peter preached it, and then Josh obeyed and preached it this morning. And now I'm obeying and preaching it again tonight. So this is the core message. This is the message that must be preached all over the world. We must preach the message of repentance. So crucial, so important. Repentance is a paradigm shift in your mind that will eventually yield a fundamental change of life. Or, as we talked about this morning, a turnaround. Turning. A turnaround of the will. It's the way I took the message. And then a turnaround of, of life's practice and patterns. Okay. Repentance must never be equated to the fruits of repentance. Thus, there must be a repentance-oriented ministry going on. Churches must be offensive, but not in tertiary ways. Not speaking about how much better Trump is than Biden or arguing about how much water to use in a baptism and such. Churches must be extremely offensive to the flesh, to the world, to the devil. Churches must go to foundational wrong thinking, foundational wrong acting, foundational battlegrounds. We don't want to be so taken up by minor skirmishes, but engaged in Omaha Beach on D-Day in the War of the World Views. In other words, we're drilling deeper and deeper and deeper into the human psyche and identifying ways in which we've had it all wrong. We've been so very, very wrong. Worldview discussions are usually repentance discussions. That's why worldview ministries are new today. They're not in churches, but they're these, these evangelistic sort of worldview uh, ad hoc ministries around. They, they're filling in for the churches that have not been preaching repentance. That's why they exist. They're trying to fight the foundational issues. That's why worldview ministries exist. They shouldn't exist. Churches should be doing all that. Churches must go to the doctrines of existentialism, nihilism, autonomy. Churches must go after the zeitgeist, must preach repentance. Let me give you one illustration of this. Barbie. The fundamental problem with Barbie is, is not that she submits to social expectations concerning her appearance. I'm pulling this off of a Christian movie review website. Very bad. Very bad. Sadly, another illustration of the total bankruptcy of Christianity around us. The fundamental problem with her is not that she's submitting to social expectations concerning her appearance. The fundamental problem with Barbie is she doesn't fear God. She doesn't worship God. She doesn't submit to God's law as to the roles of men and women. And the more fundamental problem with Barbie is what was approved by this Christian movie review site. The site wrote approvingly that, quote, each individual Barbie now should have the ability to choose who she wants to be and what she wants to do. Um, that's, that's ultimately existentialism. That's individualized autonomy. And by the way, if she chooses what she wants to be and what she wants to do, and thereby establishes her existence and value and all the rest by her choices, which is what's pressed upon us by the zeitgeist, then eventually she'll be choosing her own gender. And that's where we are today. That's where we've come to. So there's a lot to repent of. Entire foundations of thought must be chipped out and replaced by a whole new way of thinking that comes by the preaching of the Word of God and a willingness to repent. 
Repent of wrong emphases, wrong focal points, wrong thinking, wrong thinking about wrong behavior patterns, etc., etc. Repent of wrong perspectives concerning self, God, sin, Christ, God's law and righteousness. And this is the familiar day-to-day exercise or disposition of the Christian life. Repentance and faith. That's as familiar. Repentance should be as familiar to you in your spiritual life as drinking water and breathing is to your physical life. Any of you breathe or drink water? Any of you breathe or drink water? Okay, quite a few of you breathe and drink water. Um, Repentance and faith should be as familiar to you as drinking water and, and breathing in and out. Okay, and then finally, remission of sins. And we, we talked about this again. But let me just say that the word is ephemi, and the word ephemi has to do with the idea of being released or set at liberty. And as we, we talked about this morning, Peter uses another word in Acts 3.19 as uh, erasing or rubbing out or wiping out or obliterating or completely removing sin. Sin produces at least five problems. I'm only going to deal with three major problems that the word sin subsumes. Sin produces guilt, corruption, and slavery. And that's why when we confess our sins, repent and confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is a forgiveness and a cleansing. Now the cleansing is a cleaning up. Sin contaminates us like leprosy contaminates. And the problem with leprosy and the problem with COVID-19 is that it spreads and it gets worse and the symptoms even get worse. And you spread it to other people as a leavenous idea that happens with, uh, with leprosy. And so, so the idea of being contaminated by sin, we don't think about that very much. We understand guilt. I think everybody understands guilt, but there's also a contamination or a yuckiness about sin. Most people don't really want to hug and kiss somebody with leprosy or somebody with COVID-19. They don't, you know, just, hey, give me more of that. They tend not to be that way because of the contaminating element, the fact that it spreads. And when it spreads, it just things get worse and worse and worse. And so there is, with sin, this contaminating effect that is dealt with in 1 John 1, 9, that he you know, when, when God forgives us of our sins, He also cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So there's a cleansing that occurs. Sin condemns us to punishment. Sin produces guilt and sets us under condemnation. What does the blood of Jesus therefore do? It does three things. The blood of Christ forgives us, it cleanses us, and redeems us. And sets us free from the bondage of sin. Now, so sin is a debt, but also a disease and a dastardly slave master. And so Jesus releases us, cleanses us, sets us free. Scripture also uses lots of broad terminology. Here's another broad term used. I, I, would, I would argue the word aphemi is a fairly broad term, but not quite as broad as 1 John 3, 5. Jesus appeared to take away sin. Or Hebrews 9, 26. Now, once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, that's, that's beyond forgiveness. That's chucking it. Simply stated, Jesus came to chuck sin in the wastebasket. Okay? Jesus came to chuck sin and throw it into the wastebasket. Not just the guilt of sin, but everything about sin. Such that we're no longer under the bondage of sin. We're no longer bound to sin. We're no longer in debt to God because of our sin. All of that is tied up 
in that word. Sin is wiped away, done away with, as if we never sinned. Also, as this morning, Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Not just the guilt of our transgressions, but our sins themselves. Or Micah 7 and verse 18. Uh, who is a God like you? Pardoning, that word actually for pardoning, is taking away iniquity. Again, the Hebrew tends to use even broader words uh, for this. So, so Jesus has come to take away our iniquity and passing away the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not uh, retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will subdue, that is tread down, smash, crush, the word is kibosh. Put the kibosh on our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So here's the message. For those who have repented, for those who have a new outlook concerning their sins, for those who are sick and tired of sin. How many of you are sick and tired of sin? I mean, you're up to here with it. Not just the guilt of your sin, but, but the, the contamination of it, the corruption of it, what it makes you do, and the kinds of things that you become, and who you've become because of your sin, that unloving jerk that you are, you know, yet bitter, angry, lustful monster that you are, you know, whatever it is, right? We see this thing, we get this picture of ourselves as guilty and corrupt and, and in bondage to, you know, gotta, gotta, gotta sin, gotta say that nasty word to my brother or sister. It's just, finally you come to the point that you go, I need Jesus to put the kibosh on my sin and cast my sin off into the deepest ocean and separate my sin from me as far as the east is from the west. We need Jesus to remit it, to forgive it, to cast it out, to get rid of it, take it away, use all of the words. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need a fuller view of it and and, and we all need to say amen to it, because this is the good news of Jesus. And then the final point is that he promised the power to come in verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And brothers and sisters, it takes a spiritual power to carry a message like this to the nations. Don't, don't go, leave home without it. Um, I, I, I fear so many missionaries do. It's a little bit like the Sons of Siva exorcism department. They just don't have the spirit. They're, they go off into the mission field. I've run into missionaries like this. They just are not endued with power from on high. They're just not. And they're just not qualified. They, they're not ready. They're just not ready. Not filled with the Holy Spirit to the point where they can preach as Peter did on the day of Pentecost. Brothers and sisters, we absolutely need to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit all authority is given to Jesus. Jesus will be with us to the end. But above all, we do need the power of the Holy Spirit to take this message for us. And when it does, citadels come crashing down. Demonic powers, the very gates of hell cannot oppose the message. Uh, but we press through all of this. And as the apostle says, my speech, my preaching, not with the persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. No other way to go. The message must come by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they had to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. And if you're not quite ready for the ministry, then wait in Jerusalem or wait where you are. You need to wait for power from on high before you will be effective in the gospel ministry. Uh, but this is the commission, and the commission is for us. It's still on. It's still on today. Every nation, same message, until all the nations are discipled for Jesus.
Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this great word from our Savior, Jesus. Father, we, we wait for your power. We wait for your Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we know that we cannot achieve any of this by our own power, our own rhetoric. Uh, we have a message. We have such a great message. It's worthy of such a worldwide commission. But we need the power of your Holy Spirit to come down upon myself and upon my, my brother Josh Schwiso and Todd Strasser and, and all of us uh, in our respective areas that we could sh- better share this message, Father. It needs to be shared. Absolutely. We receive it tonight, uh, Father, and we want to see more and more of the nations discipled with this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.